0: I partly come here just because I really like the sound of this bell. <laughs> I get to ring it all the time. It's really fun. Yeah. So, you get that? <laughs> How many people were here last week for Stephen Batchelor's talk? Good. I'm glad some of you made it. He just wrote a book called Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist, which I highly recommend. He's a very articulate. And profound thinker, I think one of the most clear thinkers in Buddhism today. And I wanted to just read a quote from his book. It's not from him; it's from uh, the Buddha. But he, he, has a, he has a unique way of uh, finding great quotes from the Buddha and translating them in a very accessible way. He said, "The Buddha said there are not only one hundred or 500 but far more men and w- women lay followers, my disciples, clothed in white, enjoying sensual pleasures, who carry out my instructions, respond to my advice, have gone beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity. In... God, I can't read. Intrepidity. What does that say? <laughs> in- intrepidity. Well, I just blew that reading, didn't I? (laughs) Where's my thesaurus? Have gone beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, and become independent of others in my teaching. So this is a very unusual quote that the Buddha is saying here. There are many, many hundreds, if not more, thousands probably, of disciples who aren't monks, who aren't, monastics, who haven't renounced the world, who are living in the world, enjoying sensual pleasures, but who follow his teaching, follow his instruction, and have become free from doubt and perplexity and become independent of others, which means that one knows the truth for oneself, that one is no longer um, in dependence on anybody to know what one knows to be true, It's just an important stage in practice, in realization self-knowing, that we know the truth so clearly that we don't need any more external reference, any source, any person to tell us whether it's true or not, because we know from ourselves from our own experience. And so we all have that capacity, and we all have that taste that in some ways, and these teachings are really supports in helping each one of us find out what the truth is. And in particular, to find out the truth that brings happiness, the truth that brings freedom, the truth that allows us to see the different ways that we ensnare ourselves in our own self-created stress, and our own self-created anxiety, in our self-created uh, suffering. So uh, I was listening to Stephen's talk. I didn't come last week, but I was listening to it today and just appreciating that, uh, that, that tenet that is central in Buddhist thought to, uh, to, to become uh, a refuge unto oneself, to know the teachings, to put these teachings into practice, not to become a Buddhist, not to develop a whole encyclopedic knowledge of Buddhist cosmology and theology, But to understand oneself, understand the nature of reality, to understand what it means to be an awake, alive, compassionate, free human being. So the Buddha discovered that for himself a long time ago. And decided to share some of what he discovered. And I want to read something uh, that was said to be one of the last things that he uh, said before he passed away. And I want to prefix this with a poem from Mary Oliver called The Buddha's Last Instruction. She writes, Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness, to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between the two salad trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward. It thickens and settles over the fields around him. The villagers have gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly, I'm not needed yet I feel feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. And then he said, he didn't say all of this on his deathbed, but this is, uh, he was pointing to this teaching he'd given at another time. Therefore, Ananda, Ananda, his trusty attendant, be ye lamps unto yourself, be a refuge to yourselves. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp, hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone beside yourself. And those who either now or after I am dead shall be a lamp unto themselves, but holding fast to the truth as their lamp and holding fast to the truth as their refuge, shall not look for refuge to anyone besides themselves. It is they who shall reach the very topmost heights, peace, freedom. But they must be keen to learn, must be keen to know that truth. So this is an interesting teaching and somewhat paradoxical in that um, at the same time as you said, be a lamp unto yourselves, he gave this vast body of teachings. You know, it would take up, you know, if we had a library, it would take up the whole length of this stage, you know, this, you know the teachings that he gave. And then, you know, we could fill the room with, him with the amount of Buddhist books that have been written since then about philosophy and cosmology and all the rest of it. So he's saying, be a lamp unto yourself, look to your own experience your own inquiry, to know what's true for yourself. And at the same time, he was very uh, keen to share his particular understanding and uh, guide to a certain path, a certain way of seeing. So he wasn't saying, this is how it is, you know, it's my way or the highway. They said, no, this is what I know to be true. Take a look for yourself. Take a look at your own experience. What do you know? What do you know? know. What do you know to be true? What do you know that's important, that's true? So these are really good questions to reflect on. And when you read about the Buddha's journey and his, his, his early life and his time practicing in the forest as an ascetic and a monk, and you get the sense that it wasn't easy. Just like for each one of us, it's not easy this, to, to walk a, a path of awakening to cultivate oneself as a human being, to awaken the heart, to awaken the mind, to free ourselves from all the painful ways that we get caught in our egoic habits and tendencies and patterns and reactivities. It's not easy. Anybody tell you this path was easy? <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, meditate, become a Buddhist, go to a Buddhist center. It's really all fun and light and bliss. <laughs> Maybe that's the, the, sometimes the image that gets portrayed, right? You meditate and it's all just blissful and light and, you know, one with all beings and, you know, that happens sometimes. you know, not saying that bliss doesn't happen. Bliss is certainly part of, you know, it's a side effect of opening the heart and the mind and freeing ourselves from certain neuroses and whatnot. But after a period of time of asceticism and and very intensive meditation and study with all the great teachers of his time, um, he ultimately had to rely on his own clarity, his own perception, his own practice of mindfulness, which is what we practice here, his own awareness of himself, his mind, body, heart, and what that revealed that was the, the, the source and the inspiration for his awakening. And he really did become independent of others, others' teaching. And yet even after his realization, it's not like he went into, you know, enlightened retirement home you know, and cruised all the way, you know. He had to deal with, you know, a lot of, turbulent times and difficult uh, religious conflicts and challenges with developing a monastic order. And he had health issues. He had back issues. Um, He was often um, attacked by other spiritual traditions and seekers. And his life was threatened several times by his cousin. It wasn't all bliss and light. But that wasn't the point. That's not what he, he didn't, you know, he didn't try to create a certain world or conditions around him that would make him peaceful. You know, he was looking to his own mind to discover what the source of peace and happiness was. And that's what he discovered in his own awakening. That sense of peace, equanimity, clarity that's able to be at ease with whatever's happening, to be at peace to be in non-contention with the world, which is a radical state of being. What would it be like if we weren't in contention, weren't resisting, weren't fighting, weren't always seeking after some other world or reality than we have? So, after his awakening, he he um, he walked about 100 miles, to go uh, find his his buddies who he'd been doing all this intensive ascetic practice with for so many years and began to share his teaching, what he discovered. (coughs) And he gave this famous sutta called the Dharma Chakra Pravātana Sutta, which means the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, turning of the wheel of the teachings, beginning this uh, body of work, and um, after some time, even though he was concerned that nobody would get what he was on about, and for a while they didn't, at some point these his disciples started to understand and know for themselves what he was pointing to. And so that is possible for all of us, to understand what it means to be awake, what it means to be free, what it means to be at peace no matter what circumstances are befalling us. So, and as many of you know, that the first teaching he gave was this teaching on the, first no, the Four Noble Truths. Anybody familiar with that teaching? I imagine pretty much everybody. So again, it's a teaching that we talk about a lot, we read about it a lot, we hear about it a lot, but the point isn't to know it as a list, the point is to live it. It's an invitation to live and to act, not simply to know. So and really this teaching is the good news of this practice, even though it can look like it's a lot of teaching about dukkha. Dukkha is the Pali word for unsatisfactoriness or anguish or stress or burden but i know here in marin county nobody has any of that so <laughs> we're in the bay area so we'll go into the next teaching So I want to speak a little about this tonight because it seems like as, as the base point for knowing what we know, knowing what's true, one of the things that's most obvious in our human experience is that it's not so easy. No matter how comfortable, how affluent, how privileged, the conditions that we find ourselves in, and certainly for many people in the Bay Area, it's a very... Uh, compared to what's the reality of, of most people in the world. It's a very <coughs> supportive environment, right? But yet nobody escapes from anguish, from stress. Is there anybody here who doesn't have any stress? <laughs> right. or anguish. Anybody here he who's free from experiencing loss? Yeah, no. Well, some burden that we're carrying from our past, our present. Anybody here free from longing? Free from desiring something? I mean, even for a day, right? Can you imagine a day that you didn't have any longing? <laughs> or any stress? Yeah, we can, maybe we might better do that stress for a day, I don't know, maybe. But some kind of contraction where we didn't like what was happening. We wished it was different, and we avoiding and rejecting and repressing. And no, there's always some movement, some contention with reality. Reality is just what is. It's just what's 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 here. It's nothing fancy. It's just what's before our eyes. So the Buddha gave the analogy of, um, as he gave a lot of. Metaphors for his, his to, under, to make this more tangible. Give the metaphor of um, you're you're on a you're on a vehicle that has a bumpy wheel, like it's a slightly unperfect circular. Wheel, like if you're on a bicycle, it has a little warp on it, or, the, or the, the the rim of the car tie has a little warp on it. So it goes around. It's almost smooth. But there's a little, you know, slight discomfort. Little, every time it goes around, a little you know, sort of bearable, but it's kind of annoying, niggling. And that's one, one sense of this dissatisfactoriness. You know, if you think about the most beautiful to I me, mean, this weekend was a beautiful weekend, right? Beautiful spring, flowers and grasses and sunshine and light and right? maybe you planned the perfect Marin Day, you know, you got up and you had your cappuccino and then you went for a <laughs> stroll, then you went to the beach and you took the dog out and the kids to the park and you had ice cream and pizza you know, whatever, you know, whatever your fantasy day is. We can create those and they're fun. You know, why not? It's a beautiful world to enjoy. But even in, that, in those days, you know, maybe a little too much traffic on, on 101, you know, or the kids are a little too rambunctious, you know, or something, you know. Where there's that, mm, it's just not quite right. It's one definition of dukkha, not quite right. Not quite as it should be, not quite as I want it to be. So I once uh, had a tropical vacation with a friend. Uh, We went to this, for me it was a pretty upscale, swanky hotel, resort that I don't normally kind of go to. And I thought it was fabulous. It was beautiful on the cliffs, overlooking the ocean. It was tropical and all that. And the first thing they noticed as they walked in the room was the the blinds, the Venetian blinds had a little dust on them. (laughs) Like oh yeah, there's Dukkha. Even in the tropical paradise, <laughs> there it is, right there. It's not quite right. It's not quite up to snuff. So when you think about your meditation today, how was your meditation? You know, where was Dukkha present in that? Where was that that slight itching, gnawing, unsatisfactory? Oh, my breath's just not quite. Smooth, like I like to be really smooth. And my mind is just a little too restless. Or there's a little too much noise in the meditation hall. Or it's a little too warm, or a little too cold. Or my body's a little too uncomfortable. Right? Or very uncomfortable. Or my heart is grieving, and that's really difficult. <coughs> I'm right? feeling lost, or mourning. And so, as I mentioned at the beginning of the meditation, you know as we often say in this teaching it's not as important as what's happening, but how we relate to it what's the relationship when the room is noisy or too warm or too cool or your body's your body's dull or agitated? How do you be with that that's the teaching right there. the four noble truth is right in that moment there's the experience there's unsatisfactoriness and then What you do with that is whether you've experienced peace and ease in that moment or you feel miserable. This meditation would be better if only they opened the windows. Mm -hmm. If only, you know, blah, blah, blah. I had my cappuccino before I came. (laughs) So... um, So my definition of Dukkha is it's hard to be human. It's hard to be in a human body with a sensitive heart and a sensitive nervous system and to have all the exposure to life and media and everything else that that we're imprinting on us. And it's not easy to stay open and kind and clear and responsive because there's a lot of difficulty in this world. This is from Suzuki Roshi speaking about The point of our practice, he says, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there's some great difficulty in your life, not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital, and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries, and you just sit there in the middle of it all. And that's the moment that you begin to understand the power of your practice. That's really why we practice. So we can meet those moments with some grace, with some spaciousness, with some kindness, with some forgiveness. So the Buddha gave a lot of definitions for what this this foundation of the the noble truths. There is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, there is a release from suffering, there's a path. We walk to know that freedom. And one of the ways he defined this, this dissatisfactoriness is in this human... Experience is when we don't get what we want, when we lose what we have, when we're separated from that which we love. When we don't get what we want or we get what we don't want. So not getting what we want. Anybody here not getting what they want right now? <laughs> work or in your relationship your love life or your 401k (laughs) or your non-existent 401k (laughs) or your non-existent job which is a reality for millions and millions of people in this country not getting what we want what are some of the things that we don't that we're we're not getting anyone like to say the suffering that comes from not getting what you don't want the shared human experience of not getting what we don't want. Someone's not doing what we want them to do. Someone's not doing what we don't want them to do. God, those people, man. They just <laughs> don't do what we don't want them to do. Yeah. People rarely do what we want them to do. <laughs> <laughs> but his father's bipolar. Uh-huh. We want him to take his medication. Uh-huh. Do it. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. That's a setup for suffering for sure. Losing what we have, right? How how long can we go through through our days without losing something? Right? Losing something all the time. Precious moments, health, youth, fitness. Someone's laughing over there about losing his, what, age or health or both, all of it. <laughs> it's, sir, it's, depressing, you know? <laughs> it's sort of depressing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too true, you know. Right, it's true. It's true. It's depressing when we hold on. So that, you know, the second noble truth is it's depressing we get into suffering when we're in contention with that reality. You know. Yeah. Like, you know, life you know, it is passing. We are all, anybody not getting older here? <laughs> Just checking we're in the right place. Right? It's part of being human. It's part of living. It's part of being in this beautiful world. You know, we wouldn't have seasons if we didn't have change. You know, the flowers come and go. You know, they give up their glory and then, you know, a few days later they're gone. Passing blossoms. Losing what we have. Losing loved ones, losing friendships, losing trust, losing confidence, losing loyalty, losing many, many things, so easy to get to our heart to be hurt in this life and separated from that which we love. What are we separated from that causes us anguish? I think the thing that causes us most anguish is we're separated from what's true. We're separated from our true nature. We're separated from our deeper knowing. That what we're seeking, as Rumi often points of what we're seeking, what we're looking for, is the one that's doing the looking. The eyes which are looking are the ones that we're looking for. You know, We're lost in this external orientation. I know somewhere at some point I can stop all of this loss and change and misery and difficulty and anguish and stress if I just, you know, get this thing, you know. This new Lexus sports car they just come out with, or diamond ring, or you know, nose job, or I don't know, Hawaii vacation, or whatever you know floats your boat. So some people find it depressing when when this subject is talked about, <laughs> and it is if we if, if we resist. If we think, and, we, and partly we have a problem with it because we think we're doing something wrong if we're experiencing stress and anguish. We're experiencing the existential dilemma of being human. You know, one of the few species that are aware that we're going to die. You know, how weird is that? To know that our time is running out. You know, how many springs do you have left? You know, one, ten, twenty, forty, fifty? When I when I put time in in terms of seasons, I realize how short it is, you know. And again, it's not to make not to make us depressed, but to actually make, it wakes me up, you know. Like this spring, I'm completely enraptured by how amazing it is. It's so beautiful. It's a, you know I, I I cycle a lot in West Marin, and it's ecstatic. It's beautiful. The bounty, the abundance, the beauty, the The fecundness of the earth, it's, you know, and if we know, yeah, we don't know how many of those we're going to have left. This might be the last one. So we really feel it and smell it and taste it and enjoy it, love it. And we know it's going to pass and we know it's going to, everything's going to turn to toast around here and brown and crisp and, you know. And if you're like, if you're from England, like I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I have some attachment to the green grass. <laughs> so come May, no matter how much I know about change and letting go and impermanence and all of that, it's like, don't, don't go brown. <laughs> rain a little more. <laughs> so, so that, you know, when, when we reflect on these things, the point is to actually wake us up, not to depress us, but to realize the preciousness of time, of life, of practice. You know, and we can go on carrying on, the, repeating the same things. You know, What's that? the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing the same way and expecting a different outcome. Right? That's really dukkha. That's suffering right there. Right? Doing the same thing the same way and expecting a different outcome. How, how often do we do that? And we have a chance to do something differently to see these realities of change, of loss, of coming and going, of insecurity, instability. And when we rest in the truth of that, this, the, there's, there's, there's a refuge deeper than the changing experience that we can draw on. This is from the Sagadatta, great Indian Advaita teacher. who, as many, many uh, teachers do, point to this idea of turning towards the difficult and seeing what a profound opportunity is there. He writes, or he speaks, The essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be our situation, if it's acceptable, we find it pleasant. If it's not acceptable, it's painful. You will find an acceptance of pain, however, a joy which pleasure cannot yield, For the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self, with its desires and fears, enables you to return to your real nature, the source of all happiness and peace. So, we're all doing that. We're all pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. It's a natural human tendency but it's not actually what brings about the peace that we're really seeking. That kind of nourishment, that, that, that sustenance that gives us some support when we're faced with the inevitable vicissitudes of life, inevitable changes in, in this world. But as I said earlier, that what's important is not so much what's happening, how, but how are we relating to these difficulties? How do you relate to your burdens? How do you relate to your stress and your anguish? Do you get up in the morning going, Oh, God, I hope that doesn't come today. Please, no, I'm sick of that knee pain, that, that heartache, that longing, that loneliness, the emptiness... Do we, you know, do we turn to the TV or whatever form of distraction we, we, you know, distraction of choice find ourselves in the pint of ice cream in the freezer? Where do we go to not be with simply being with that experience? Victor Frankl wrote, "It's not the load that weighs us down. It's not the load that weighs us down, but how we carry it. So how are we carrying our burdens? How are we relating to them?" The poet Hafez put it a little more comically. He said, you carry within you all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. (laughs) And you also carry within you all the ingredients to turn your life into a joy. To build a swing in your backyard for the divine. So gather all your talented friends, he says. Bring those in ingredients together, mix them, mix them, let's have a party. So in a way, even though Buddhist teachings might not sound like a party, um, they are a way of gathering our talented friends to learn how to relate, how to live wisely in this world. So when the Buddha gave this teaching, there was there was there was an, as an action piece to every part of them, the four noble truths so the first noble truth he said is the, the 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 truth of suffering the truth of anguish and stress is to be understood to stand under to be with ajahn chao once wrote Normally, with suffering, we run away from it. By running away from it, we run towards it. So notice the ways that you run away from it. This is from Ajahn Samadha, one of his uh, students and teachers. He says, To allow this teaching to work, we must be willing to suffer, this is why I stress the importance of patience. We have to open our minds to suffering because it is an embracing suffering that suffering can cease. When we find that we are suffering and we go to the actual source that is present, we can open completely to it, welcome it, concentrate on it, allowing it to be what it is. And that means we must be patient and bear with the unpleasantness of a particular condition. We have to endure boredom and despair and doubt and fear in order to understand that they cease of their own accord. So, so the invitation is to, when, when these difficult states arise right in the next 20 seconds, boredom, restlessness, dullness, irritation, reactivity, longing, loneliness, emptiness, deficiency in the next two minutes then what would it be like just to, 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 to turn towards that I mean, we use this, this, this lens of mindfulness to, to recognize oh, what's, what's here right now oh, I'm feeling really empty oh, and I can't wait to fill it with something uh, what's it like just to feel the emptiness? Oh, it feels kind of lonely and kind of hopeless and like it's never going to go away. And, but if I stay with it, oh, I actually notice that it's actually not too bad. It's actually bearable. And in that staying with it, it actually turns to a kind of a sort of mellowness or a peacefulness or a, an okayness or a, or, a, or a sense of equanimity or something. So whatever your, you know, your demons are, you know, we'll have our demons, we'll have our top ten demons, you know, that we, that we most, least want to experience, you know, at the weekend when we're home alone, you know, what would it be like to turn towards it and just to feel it, to sense it, to allow it, to get to know it? How many things do we run from? How many things do we let run our lives, you know? I think the number one fear in this country is to be bored. Right? It's like a cardinal sin. <laughs> Thou shalt not be bored in the United States of America. It's the Sixth Amendment. <laughs> so we have a gazillion distractions, right? Because God forbid, bored if we're bored, it would mean what we'd have to be with ourselves, you know, feel ourselves for a moment, you know, and see what's there beneath all the you know, busyness and the uh, workaholism and all of that. Right? That's why meditation is often so challenging. That's why we get to meditate once a year, right? Because <laughs> what happens is we have to be with ourselves, and it's one of the funniest things in this in this modern age that we live in. I don't know if this is always true. That it's really hard to be with ourselves. I'm seeing a lot of nodding heads. Hard to be with ourselves. What, a, what an interesting phenomena that we, we are in a culture that doesn't want to be with itself. It's kind of bizarre from a certain point of, you know, here we are, It's so like we can't really get away from ourselves, but we don't want to be here, mostly, for, for a lot of people anyway, or at least a lot of the time. So what's that about? That clearly is suffering. And to not to not not know how to face that means we're running from ourselves. And if we're running from anything, you know, it's suffering. So so meditation and these teachings are really a practice of stopping. Stopping running. So one of the things that we run from a lot is our body, which is kind of hard to do since we're in it, but there you are. (laughs) We do anyway. We pretend we don't have one. We ignore it. We override it. We don't listen to it. We push it. We abuse it. We stuff it full of all kinds of junk that shouldn't be inside it and expect it to perform really well every day and get really mad when it gets sick and does things we, we don't want it to do. that's one of the reasons why we don't want to be with ourselves cuz to be with the body we have to experience the reality of the body and sometimes the reality of the body is it's painful you know good housekeeping magazine once reported there were 84 unpleasant sensations in the body as they're an authority on you know <laughs> awareness of the body you can take that to be true probably more than that, but there's quite a few just sitting meditation, the achiness and the stiffness and the knees cramping and the back aching and the neck tightness and, you know, who do you want to be with that? <laughs> but here we are, you know, we're in a body and that happens, so we may as well get to learn how to be with it, how to find peace in the middle of that. And you know, I found working with body pain and meditation a great uh, training, you know, meditation is a training for how to be with experience in life and if you sit still long enough you'll get to work with difficulty and it's a great practice to learn how to be with, with with difficulty in the body when things don't go our way I think I've told this story here before I, I was on a three month retreat in, uh, on, in the sister center on the east coast, IMS and I was I was doing a, a lot of long retreats, and uh, this one particular year, it got really painful to sit. My some some nerves in my sit bones kind of just started flaring or something, and so I couldn't actually sit on the cushion, which was a drag because that was all I was doing was meditating on a three-month retreat. So I would do everything to avoid this experience of sitting on my sit bones, which is hard when I mean, there's nothing else to do but sit. You know, and I would sort of sit like this and like this. And I'd fa- this, my fantasy, my, my ongoing fantasy was designing this meditation chair that hung suspended from the ceiling <laughs> that didn't have any contact with my sit bones. Which I still think is a good idea, but anyhow. Once the retreat end, I was like, forget that. <laughs> so that, you know, so what do we do when we don't want to be with something? We, we go up into the coconut, and we start thinking, you know, fantasy land, dreaming, planning. So one of my favorite stories of, of learning how to work with the pain in the body is when I was teaching a um, mindfulness-based stress reduction class some years ago at Kaiser, and uh, it's an eight-week class teaching very simple mindfulness practices and some body awareness and yoga and stuff, and and it's with chronic pain patients, mostly the, the, the medical system has given up hope for because none of their pain meds or surgeries work. And so they come to mindfulness practice as a last resort to see if they can get some alleviation from their pain. And uh, this one woman had chronic neck pain, searing neck pain for about 10 years. And the, the the pain meds didn't work, and so she was in this class, and after and she was with a fair amount of distress around the pain. And after about the fourth or fifth week, she came back. She would give homework practice every week, and she came back, and she was really excited to report that she'd had a meditation where she'd gotten quiet enough through the rhythm of the practice that... Um, she was able to see how much the pain was caused by her resisting, resisting and tightening, and fighting and contracting, and being afraid of the pain. And over the course of the meditation, that softened and relaxed enough so she could actually feel the the root, the core of the pain, which was you know, in the nerve somewhere in the neck. And but when when she could soften and all of that resistance and fear, and actually just feel the the sort of the micro sensations of the pain, she realized they were actually bearable. They were actually, it wasn't half as bad as she thought it was. And she realized she had some capacity to be with that if she was mindful rather than reacting and in, in fear. And it was a very profound revelation for her to see that she had that capacity. Didn't make the pain go away, didn't heal the neck necessarily, but it gave her resources which is what this practice does. It gives us resources, capacity that we all have to, to be with the difficult, to be with the challenging, as the Suzuki Roshi was speaking about. Now as I was just writing, writing this talk today, I was remembered um, a story about a man I'd, I'd met in uh, Tiruvannamalai in, in southern India in Tamil Nadu and uh, he was he was a, he was in a, he was in the Japanese prison of war camp during the war, and uh, he, his job was to uh, clean out the cess pit where all the you know, all the all the latrines would go into the central cess pit, and his job they put him into the cess pit up to there, oh. and he had to sort of dig it out with buckets. And he had a profound spiritual awakening in the cesspit of all places (laughs) because he realized that who he was wasn't just the body, that his body was obviously in complete revolt to every single aspect of that experience. But he found because the intensity of that experience often happens in intense experiences, that he actually saw his mind was able to be quite at peace in the middle of that. It was a very profound teaching for him. This is from Rumi. Pay homage, God says, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms. There would not be one experience. I missed out the word if. If God said, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms, there would not be one experience of my life. Not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow to. So, you know, nobody wants to have pain and difficulty and anguish and all of that. And yet when it does come, and we do learn how to work with it and be with it, and grieve or whatever it is required to feel, to sense, to allow, to let go, it's usually the things that most transform us. Even though we so long to be free of it, it's often what, when it's metabolized, is what actually allows us to grow, allows us to, to know a certain depth or harmony or clarity that we've not yet needed to or been forced to touch. hear the rain. So one of the beautiful things about, one of the beautiful things I appreciate about having trained... My mind and having practiced mindfulness for such a long time that when those moments appear, just like the sound of the rain, very simple, very innocent, that we can be fully there. You know, Normally what, what's happened, we, we might, wouldn't even notice that. We're so busy, lost in our own world and our own trance and our thoughts and our fears and our worries and blah, blah, blah. And we miss these precious moments. I would like to let the rain give the rest of the Dharma talk, but we have fifteen more minutes, <laughs> <laughs> which would be fine by me. But I'll say a few more words, and I'll close. <laughs> so um, one of the one of the mm, biggest sources of, of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, that we experience is having an untrained mind. You know how we take our dogs, like you know, puppies, to you know training camps. You know to discipline them and all that. And we need a few more of those for the mind. Anyway, that's what meditation is. That's what retreat is. It's like boot camp for the mind. Anybody notice how unruly your mind is? How wily and all over the place and kind of in control a lot of the time, then it's really it's really painful, isn't it? You're just lying in bed and you want to go to sleep and it's just churning and churning about what you did today, what you didn't do today, what you've got to do tomorrow, what you, you mustn't forget, and what you said to so-and-so and how dare they say that to you and you know, these arguments and discussions and... or the way our mind catastrophizes. And notice how your mind catastrophizes? You think about the worst-case scenario <laughs> as if it's really real. What happens if I lose all my money, you know, or my wallet, or my car keys, or my partner, or my... you know. We go on these long fantasies and s- that are really quite painful. It's like going to see a really bad movie <laughs> that we sign up for, you know... Dozens of times a day, if not hundreds of times a day. Like, what a racket. (laughs) Oh, the way we torture ourselves. The way that we are harsh, cruel, critical, judgmental, high standards with ourselves. The voice that says... Uh, you shouldn't meditate this morning. You, you need to, you know, they, they, they say at Spirit Rock you've got to take care of your body and take care of yourself. So just sleep in, you know, be nice to yourself. and You can meditate tomorrow, you know. And life's all a meditation anyway, you know, and so it's all good. And, you know, and then, you know, comes, you know, you, you sleep in and, and then, you know, you get to your breakfast and your mind's like, oh, I can't believe you didn't meditate. You're so nice. pathetic. <laughs> You're such a loser. You said you were going to meditate every day and look what happened. <laughs> it's like it's impossible that part of the mind the, the critic, the judge, whatever you call it the slave driver so unless we start to get a handle on, on, on our minds start to have some awareness of it start to see the, the, the pain of following these habits of thought of letting the mind run freely. The mind is a beautiful thing and it has wonderful capacity to create and to imagine and to plan and to envision and all of that. But mostly our mind isn't doing that. (laughs) It's mostly running over to to to-do lists and giving ourselves a hard time and judging other people and (laughs) it's startlingly startlingly uncreative and unimaginative and unprofound. (laughs) So, to you know, we, that's why we emphasize the body so much in this practice. And if a person is an in the body, practice the body is always in the present moment. The senses are always in the present moment. So, invite the attention from the eyebrows upwards to sort of notice that you have a body. Bring it down, you know, into into the felt sense. You know, feel like right now, as you're sitting, feel the earth. Feel your feet, feel your buttocks, feel your legs. Feel your belly, let your belly be soft. Feel your breathing. <laughs> Listen to the sounds of the rain. You know, we live in, we have, we're sensual creatures and we live in a beautiful sensual world and so invite the, the attention into the senses will keep you more grounded in the present moment. I suggest to people spending a lot of time outdoors because it invites our attention into our senses. When we're in our senses, just in the physical act of being present in the moment, then what's happening? We're, we're here. We're here. We're not in some drama, some fierce scenario, some regret, some trying to make a better past. And the same thing with our feelings. You know? I think, we, we again, we live in, in a culture that's so overly dominated with thinking that we're not so fluent with our emotional life, not so skilled at learning how to be with it, how to allow it, how to embrace it, how to just let it be. I sometimes work with people um, and... There's just not even a language, a literacy for emotional words. You know how sometimes, there's a, for kids, they have there's those pictures of smiley faces, and there's happy, sad, bad, and angry, and, you know, and delighted, and lonely, and you know, and, and, and sometimes people need to, to to look at that, just to just to see what, to, even just to recognize what, what emotional range might be there. We're so disconnected. It's a great cartoon. There's this guy sitting at a desk, and he's has his finger on the intercom to his secretary. And the caption underneath says, "Miss Jenkins, please get me in touch with my feelings." <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes we're a bit like that. <laughs> feelings? <laughs> what feelings? And those of us are, you know, maybe overwhelmed with feelings, and so that's another. That's a, and there's a need for balance there. But again the practice is inv- inviting us the teachings it is to know what's true to know what's happening in your experience to know what am i feeling what am i how do i relate to my emotional life if i if i feel the faintest whiff of sadness do i slam it down you know or irritation no that's not okay it's not okay to be angry I'm supposed to be a nice calm buddhist it's completely out of lunch <laughs> So to pay attention as you as as feelings, emotions arise. To know again, it's back to this important point, it's not what's happening but how we relate to it. Sadness and joy and depression, sad loneliness and fear and anxiety aren't necessarily suffering in themselves. When we add what the Buddha called the second dot, the second arrow, when we reject them, criticize them, judge them blame ourselves, drown in self-pity. You know, we create a whole second layer of suffering around our emotional world. So with practice, we're willing to peel those layers back and just to simply recognize, what is this? Sadness is like this. Loss is like this. Grief is like this. And I've had many periods in my life where I've experienced a lot of grief and a lot of loss and a lot of Sadness. And because of the practice, it's been such a great support to be able to soften and settle and to rest and to surrender into those feelings. And there's actually a lot of sweetness in those feelings. I wouldn't wish them on anybody, but if when we can meet them with a certain openness, we don't need to be suffering in the middle of them. They can just be as they are. Sadness is like this. Grief is like this. Loss is like this. It's not easy, but we don't have to add a layer of suffering onto it. So I'll close with this poem, beautiful poem by the poet Rashani, which speaks to this capacity to meet the difficult, meet our burdens, and to rise from the ashes like the phoenix. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being, There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. So thank you so much for your attention and your practice. Uh, pay attention to this aspect of your experience and how you relate to it. Jack will be here next week. I think I'm teaching the following week and I'll be probably talking about the second noble truth, about the the cause of, of our own anguish. So take care, be well. Thank you.